This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is August 3rd, 2023. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield, back from the beautiful Okanagan. It, I had a great couple of weeks, almost 10 days out in Kelowna. It's a beautiful part of this province, although traffic in that city is just always bad. It turns out having one bridge, uh, one main road through town, and like moderate public transit, like some buses... Uh, is not sufficient. So, well, I hear um, if uh, BC United gets elected, there will be a second bridge. I don't even know where though. That lake is so big, but it's not the best lake yes, in the province. Yes, but a very big lake means there's many potential points to place a bridge. It's fair. The one that's there already is floating. But we're not here to talk about bridges and the Okanagan. We are here today to talk about political party fundraising, Alberta just giving up on renewables, Trudeau giving up on housing, and uh, the trees we're planting, which is a good thing. Patreon.com slash Politicoast if you want to support the show and get into the Patreon Slack, where we're always having great politics conversations. Let's start with the second quarter political party financing numbers that are out this week, both provincially and federally. Uh, They're like minorly interesting at the provincial level. We see that all of the parties that have to report the Greens, NDP, BC United, and the Conservatives are up over first quarter. So it was good days for all of them. Uh, But two parties in particular have real reason to celebrate. That is the NDP who is up uh, 250 million and have opened up a nice big gap. That's they're probably pretty happy to 250 see. 250 million, 250,000. <laughs> that would be something to definitely celebrate in a quarter billion dollars in a single quarter. <laughs> I'm so tired. Uh, the conservatives, though, uh, raised their amount from the conservatives though increased from 26 million in the first quarter to 65 million they're still like well in the back of the pack but this level of growth is pretty significant for them i guess the greens did pretty well they went from 200 million they went from 200,000 to 300,000 that's a 50% increase for them bc united for comparison only went from 630,000 to 770,000 so an increase which they've desperately needed but proportionally not as good as everyone else and their gap with the government has increased yeah honestly like the only real thing i find particularly interesting here is those bc conservative numbers just because after the uh, surprisingly good second place finish in uh, the recent by-elections there we speculated a bit that maybe they would uh, see some fundraising success as a result as they can show they're a little more viable and, you know, center-right donors may uh, spread their options around a little more and, yeah, looks like a bit of that's panning out. 
Yeah, one thing that's notable when you dig into the reports themselves is BC United and the Greens both have about 2,800 or 2,900 donors. BC United has about 100 more donors and far more of their donors are giving above $250. So they get uh, reported in there. The Greens have a lot more small donors, uh, 2,400 versus the 2,100 for BC United. So the fact the base that is giving money to BC United is almost the same size as the BC Green Party's base is not a healthy sign. For comparison, the NDP have 6,600 small donors alone, plus another 90, 940 large donors. Like They're well ahead on people giving them money on every category, and it's paying off. Like The Conservatives are coming up with... Uh, 750 donors almost 725 but like bc united is tapping out their small base and the greens have more room to grow here you know i feel like we have this conversation almost every quarter it's, it's a very similar thing yeah it is always the same thing like roughly the same packing order roughly uh same levels of fundraising on there and I'm pretty sure every single time I remark that uh, BC United or the BC Liberals, which I think is the biggest change uh, from those quarters to now, is just the branding. But like they've continued to have a problem of uh, adapting to the new fundraising rules, and uh, not even new fundraising rules at this point. I mean, they've been in place for what half a decade or more, but they still have not retooled to do that like small dollar lots of donors, fundraising model. That's kind of what you need when you have such low uh, donation caps. And I don't know, it's just honestly just a bit baffling they haven't been able to do it yet. It's not like there isn't a fair bit of overlap between them and the federal conservatives. And, uh, you know, those people, as we will talk about, are the experts at uh, that kind of fundraising. Yeah, if... It wasn't for the conservative numbers on here, which are particularly notice notable for them more than doubling their base in a single quarter. I don't know if I'd have even put this in the show notes because, yeah, the sa it's the same story for the main three parties. The Greens are struggling to get as much money, but they're getting a sizable base. BC United is not growing, and Kevin Falcon needs to answer for that internally at some point, like... This was the problem Andrew Wilkinson had. It's been their problem since they lost government is they don't have a reason for people to support them at this point. And now with John Rustad's conservatives kind of coming forward with, I don't even know what yet, but at least being a home for outrage and anger. And I, I think there's, are, there's you know, reason to be angry. Yeah, they're, they're I think, doing a bit better job of at least articulating a vision that is beyond just not the NDP, which is kind of what BC United is stuck in now. And I'm usually a pretty strong proponent of, you know, you want to, particularly in a quasi two-party system, kind of want to hug the center and try and fight for those votes. But, you know, you actually at least need some structure to layer over top of that. Like That has just been absent from the BC United. 
And they seem no closer to figuring that out. And conservatives at least have something. I guess we'll see in four months if there's any actual updates to hear. Hell, maybe the conservatives overtake BC United in terms of number of donors. It's not actually that big of a gap. Uh, and considering BC United, uh, and considering the BC Conservatives have fundraised more in the first half of this year than they did all of last year, they have some momentum. Let's jump to the federal scene where it is the Conservatives who have the momentum of a runaway freight train, as uh, Mr. Burns would put it. They raised another obscene amount in the second quarter. The numbers. Uh, this is coming via Eric Grenier's The Writ because I didn't bother to take the time to go through the individual fundraising pages. They're a little bit more painful to go through than Elections BCs, which aren't that straightforward either. But you can at least click directly to each of the scanned reports. All of the parties look like they roughly did how well they did in the first quarter federally. And from that perspective, nothing is particularly notable here. What I think is most notable is that in the first half of 2023, now we can see the Conservatives have already raised $16.3 million and the Liberals have only raised 6.8. It's just a wild gap. Okay, go ahead. I mean, the Conservatives continue to do a good number. They've pretty much always outraised the Liberals, at least as long as I can remember. I mean, I don't know, maybe there was a quarter or two here or there where the Liberals pulled in something similar to the Conservatives, but like, by and large, the Conservatives have just done a really good job for a long time now about like turning out those consistent small dollar donations. And you know, you're seeing it here. Then they they pulled in more in a quarter than the Liberals did in an entire half a year. Yeah, for the other parties' parts, the NDP for the first half of the year is at two point six million. The Greens at eight hundred thousand the block at 562,000 and the people's party only have Q2 data which was 297,000. So I guess they're probably late on their Q2 reports. Yes. Uh, what's also notable is when you go back to the annual reports for 2022 federally, the conservatives are sitting on net assets at December 31st of 16.8 million, the liberals at 4.8 million and the NDP at 700,000. So like none of them have a full war chest, which would be, I guess, forty-one million for the individual candidate campaigns, plus another thirty-one million for the political parties. But the conservatives are quite a lot further along towards that goal, and the liberals have to be looking at whether or not they want to go to an election. And like money, as we've seen doesn't necessarily win you elections or else conservatives would be purely unbeaten since Andrew pretty Sear much would be on they united term as prime minister Stephen harper would have never lost all of that kind of stuff right but it does become very difficult to keep up when the gap starts to be that big particularly if the internet media scene has shifted as much as it looks like it's starting to with the balkanization of social media and news being shut off on certain platforms. So, you know, that probably puts some cold water on the election speculation within the liberals, but you know, every party makes dumb calls from time to time. Yeah. And, and not only that, like, eh. 
there's been a fair bit of speculation about, oh, what happens if there's a uh, another minority parliament and the conservatives win a plurality, but like can't get to um, the full votes for a confidence vote to pass, and does that, and will they go back to the polls and like? even if the conservatives just burn through a huge amount of money, like they're going to be better placed to fight a second campaign shortly after a first one. And that also changes the calculus quite a bit. Uh, Digging into Grenier's analysis of this as well for just a couple more thoughts. Uh, The NDP reportedly had one of their best quarters in quite a while, while the Greens had one of their worst. Neither of these are particularly like shocking numbers like the NDP did like a couple percent better than the previous ones uh, and the Greens did a little bit worse but I guess that's a little bit of comfort for Jugmeet Singh and his leadership which you know faces continual questions over where's the growth and meanwhile the Greens I don't even know at this point what to think or say or do about them but they're just floundering uh turns out going to two leaders one of whom was the perennial leader of the last i don't know 15 years was maybe not the best idea so none of them probably want to fight an election anyway yeah i mean at this point like i'm pretty sure the conservatives are the only ones who actually want to fight an election the liberals would be foolish to uh give up a couple more years at governing particularly considering they are not doing well in the polls so yeah absent uh something that breaks the uh supply confidence agreement or uh trudeau just uh saying screw it let's roll the dice like it's there's not going to be an early election let's jump to alberta now where the news this morning was really weird uh, in a bad way. The province has asked its utilities commission to implement a seven-month break on approving new renewable energy projects, notably wind and solar, as they want to uh, review where they can be built, how they will affect the uh, power grid, and what to do with these facilities when they reach their end of lives. Uh, Wait, Alberta now cares about what happens to energy projects at the end of their life? Right? This is the province that just lets abandoned wells it just, get, litter its landscape. Well, literally. How much money did uh, Danielle Smith end up throwing at uh, like the abandoned wells recently? Like, it was a lot, wasn't it? Uh... It's a, we're talking. It's definitely in the hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more. Oh, the Alberta Energy Regulator puts the price tag at eighteen and a half billion dollars for uh, what's sitting out there abandoned. The Alberta Liabilities Disclosure Project, which is a coalition of landowners and experts, estimates there's seventy billion dollars worth of wells, and the uh, estimate. F- from the regulator internally that has been officially disavowed suggested uh, the liabilities may exceed 260 billion dollars just in alberta so like a lot yeah uh, but we're really concerned about what happens to some like old windmill wind turbines and 
solar plants. It's very bizarre. Yeah, so like, yeah, unlike oil wells, which, you know, are continual source of pollution, actually have like some pretty serious effects. Like, what's the worst case scenario for a solar farm that reaches the end of its life and nobody bothers to like properly decommission it? Just have a bunch of panels sitting out there doing not much. Like, that hardly seems like a huge concern compared to toxic chemicals continuing to like bubble up from the earth. Yeah, like there's a tiny bit of safety concerns if you have abandoned structures that, you know, maybe kids are out playing and something falls on them. Yeah, like that's about it. But that's you that's a universal liability for decommissioned buildings. Yeah, like if anything, this is probably a bigger concern with wind turbines, which are actually like big tall towers with a whole bunch of very heavy stuff sitting on top of them. And yeah, they have a bunch of structural deterioration. That's a serious risk. But solar farms? This feels like it's really all about the small, moderate number. I'm not even convinced how many people are upset, but the people who are upset by these uh, installations going on or near their property. Um, it's like pure nimbyism kind of stuff, whether it's for uh, trumped up health campaign concerns or just I don't like the look of them kind of stuff. Uh, but it's this like need to obsess over what's happening above ground versus below. Uh, I've seen some things point out that like there's not many concerns when the mineral rights are below ground and so they can be sold off differently and this is a challenge for the above ground projects and Alberta's so weird um it's wild too because i grew up in alberta right and i watched pilot project farms go up around pincher creek and south of calgary and we had some impressive wind farms that are still there and they are starting to expand those finally uh following the notley government but now there's just this like pushback on something that is it's I struggle to see it as anything other than objectively good. Yeah, it's baffling too because as the Globe and Mail noted, Alberta's leading the country in terms of uh, renewable energy projects. There are uh, three thousand four hundred megawatts of projects currently under construction. That's worth more than two point seven billion dollars. Like there is actually serious money here and a bunch of projects. Uh, in the works, and those ones right there are currently under construction, so aren't going to be stopped by this uh, permitting freeze, but there's got to be a whole bunch more in behind it coming through. And, like, yeah, you're just getting in the way of a market that's actually seems to be working fairly well. And, like, they're trying to justify this on the case of, like, eh, we need to figure out, like, how a bunch of the stuff's going to work, like where does it fit in with like our energy mitts and everything uh, and that stuff. And I can kind of see that. Like there is a problem with renewable energy where if you get to be like too high a percentage of the grid, it can cause instability issues because it's intermittent. It's uh, non-dispatchable. You can get spikes in or troughs in production that like don't line up with demand 
my understanding is like typically you need to be like twenty percent or higher before you like even start to encounter problems. And as of uh, the twenty nineteen numbers, are the ones I was able to pull up here quickly, uh, only six percent of electricity production in Alberta is wind, and less than one percent is solar. Like they are just not even close to that. Yeah, like Alberta has probably more wind and sun than any other province like <laughs> oh yeah no southern alberta is like the sunny spot in yeah it is a very good place for these projects so it's not surprising they have so many but there's just such like a you know reactionary backlash is all it really is of people who have built their identity around oil and gas and farming and they see any change to that as like a threat to their identity and so they have found excuses around encroachment and environmental regulations or cleanup stuff which don't really make sense but they're going to pause this for pure reasons of ideology yeah i mean look, I, they're doing to like wind and solar what they get really annoyed about for like progressives trying to do to uh oil and gas it's just ironic and a little irritating there was literally a story a couple of weeks ago about an oil refinery in alberta i believe it was that they just discovered never got permitted and has been operating for like 25 years how does that even happen well your regulator is captured by the oil and gas industry and so some things just get missed scott it is a it's an oil refiner. This is not like some small little thing that you can just like sneak in somewhere. Like a multi, like hundred million, probably billion dollar capital project. It, yeah, operated outside Slave Lake for 22 years. Uh, they have an interim order for now and they have to try and go through all of the processes. But yeah, it seems it just got missed in 2001. Which is just wild, but yeah, now they can't build build some new wind turbines because that's the threat to the province, and not just like basic uh, due diligence. There's a reason I moved. Uh... From what absurdity to the next, we have a war of words at the federal level between Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev as. Trudeau said off the cuff in one discussion that housing is not a, quote, primary federal responsibility, but rather something the federal government should, quote, can and must help with. An accurate statement in terms of the constitutional law, but uh, not a good political one, given look around. Yeah, and uh, an opposition that has been hammering the uh, the housing message for... Uh well over a year now and yeah it's not gonna sit well with people to uh argue the minutiae on this stuff even if uh like yeah under a uh pure reading of uh the relevant sections of the constitution it's not a direct federal responsibility but you know that's uh never been something trudeau's have been shy about uh dealing with before or known to uh, hew particularly closely to uh, 
a rather strict reading of those sections. And yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, people are frustrated they can't afford rent or to buy a home and uh, being told not my problem after spending years talking about how much uh, the federal government was doing on this and touting their housing was it housing accelerator fund and a new savings account and everything it yeah it's politically foolish and the opposition wasted no time in uh hitting back on that well and like the federal government has and continues to have a role in housing like trudeau kind of hints at that as saying it can and should help but like and Polly have pointed all of this out that the CMHC exists. The federal government has in the past put a lot of money into housing and has actually increased some of that money under Trudeau's watch through various uh, accelerator funds, many of which we could criticize day and night here on the podcast. But like they've done a little bit on that. Uh, there's tax breaks and other things that they could do and ev- everyone has called on them to do. So like, yeah, the federal government could be doing a lot more to do this. Trudeau, uh, Polly have also, you know, pointed to immigration, and this is the ongoing frustration I'm seeing on social media of the right wing really picking up on the liberals' talk of higher immigration targets with zero. I'm not even sure if it's the right commensurate. wing. Commensurate. Like, I don't know. I'm starting to see like those sentiments kind of bubble up from. Uh more than just the right like it's it seems to be kind of cutting across a uh, decent cross section of the country which is not great uh yeah if if justin trudeau's final legacy is destroying the immigration consensus in this country that will be bad yeah it will but, but yeah. uh yeah they uh they certainly seem i don't want to say intent on I'm plowing ahead with that without kind of uh, putting as much thought into the the needs to uh, scale stuff up for the increased population. But uh, it seems to be more a case of just incompetence or neglect on that. And it's, yeah, going to both hurt that consensus and is uh, not going to bode well for the... uh, the, uh, Conservatives already basically got an attack ad on this that they, uh, uh, I saw pushed out the social media. Like, I don't know what's on Canadian cable these days, but, uh, and yeah, it was a pretty standard, but like well done attack ad on this stuff. And it's, it's going to be one of those quotes that's going to, uh, linger and continue to hurt Trudeau. And I mean, as, as much as I would appreciate uh, a little more attention being paid to the various responsibilities that the different levels of government had, like at the end of the day, if you're arguing jurisdictional stuff rather than focused on the actual deliverables, that's ultimately loser talk, and it's pr- probably uh, not going to end well for the liberals if they keep up that line. The other thing I noticed here is this response came fast and quick from Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives, and that's not surprising, but there was nothing from the NDP, at least nothing that got picked up by the media, nothing on their press releases that I could see, and nothing on at least their 
Twitter X whatever profile that they have posted other stuff on. And it's like, you know, I get there's limited capacity in the smaller party, but in terms of the things you want to make your party about, they've talked about wanting to be the party of housing, but you have to actually step up and respond when there's a chance. And they missed it here completely. Yeah, for sure. I'm not curious if they actually whether they actually put anything out on social media or statements or whatever that got I didn't see missed. anything on Twitter. Yeah. Um Yeah, so that's a failing debt right there. Uh if they didn't even bother responding. I mean they are stuck in this spot where like nobody's actually takes their criticism so seriously or like they've it's been watered down because they are continuously stuck with the well, why are you propping these guys up if they're so terrible? Like, it's they're kind of in the uh, the confidence supply drift has kind of put them in the spot where they get a lot of the downsides of being the junior partner in coalition without any of the upside. Um, but yeah, you actually have to say something for even that to have an effect. Yeah, and they've criticized the government on other files or said not enough is being done so like they are willing to poke a bit around like yeah the advantage of being in confidence and yeah i mean it's always going to be but at least if you're in confidence supply rather than a formal coalition you're not in cabinet making those decisions and so you can be like the government is wrong on here we've only agreed to support them on x y and z which they're not fully delivering but here we are it's a mess. Get your stuff together. NDP. I don't even know if any other parties pick this up. Maybe they just missed the story that you know only had a couple days of headlines. Yeah. I'm hoping we see some better housing policies come forward because everything we've seen so far is well, like, either like, vague or a slight lackluster. I mean, the problem like, with still a lot early. of this stuff is like, everyone knows what needs to be done. Hell, like I think at one point or another, all the parties have at least like made statements that point in the general direction of doing a little more, like tying funding to outcomes for municipalities and stuff. Because um, the liberals have basically walked back any sense of that with their uh, "why can't we all get along and sing kumbaya" and like that's why that'll solve the housing crisis op-ed that they're. The recently uh, departed housing minister put out a couple weeks ago. But yeah, like, I don't know, housing's continually frustrating because it's not like there needs to be any particularly innovative policies. There's a pretty clearer set of things everyone knows needs to be done. You just actually have to do them, and nobody seems to really want to or push for them enough. Well, it seems like the thing the Liberals may actually be pushing just enough if we're not going to get all the homes we need, we may get all the trees we need as Energy and Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson announced today that we are ahead of schedule on the 2 billion tree program. This comes following an Auditor General report saying we are woefully behind um, on this. The 2 billion tree promise from 2021 expands on the 1 billion tree promise of 2019 that the Liberals made. 
And looking at their plan chart, we were roughly 3% behind our goal of 2021. Um, this, this is a really great federal government approach of backloading all of the work where one and a half billion trees get built or planted in the last five years. Yeah, I, I noticed it had, yeah, it's like a lot of their uh, spending programs where we're going to spend $10 billion on something, the last $8 billion of which are going to be spent in years uh, 9 and like, 10. I get you have to ramp a program like this up, right? You can't just magic into existence all the workers and seeds. So fair enough. But going from $30 million to $300 million, uh, in four years seems ambitious. Um, but here we are. We were slightly behind in 2021, but they're saying we're potentially ahead on 2022 and 2023 already. And so, you know, we're doing great and we're going to get our 2 billion trees planted. This is particularly vital and important given the terrible wildfire season we've seen this year. I don't know how many trees we've lost to that. It tells us the number of hectares. Uh, a lot of that will grow back naturally. There's a little bit of a debate in the CBC piece I was reading for this that'll be in the show notes between some of the conservationists who note that a lot of forest fires do grow, regrow naturally pretty well, um, but we're also starting to see many aren't. So there are also calls to expand the 2 billion promise to, or at least to focus it more on reforestation of these burnt out areas rather than like, I don't know, the tree giveaway in Coquitlam where I live, where random residents can get a free tree to plant in their backyard. I got a service berry tree. Um, there's no follow-up to see if you keep the tree alive either. That's one of the two billion trees, by the way. Uh, uh, is it? Okay. So we're... Uh... It's, it's, a met, like, it's a complicated program, right? To get two billion trees, you don't just have the government hire a bunch of forestry workers to go out and plant two billion. You, you do in partnerships. And so a big chunk of it is working with provinces and municipalities and First Nations to get a bunch of different pathways to two billion. Well, you just send every Canadian 50 uh, seeds and uh, solved. Yeah. And then you've planted two billion, right? One of the big things I noticed in this CBC piece is that the province the federal government wants the provinces to shoulder most of the burden by having them plant 1.35 billion through their own programs. It's pretty and they've managed, right there. I mean, you know your constitution, Scott. Tree planting is clearly a provincial jurisdiction. Maybe under the environment it is. This is one of those things where power of the purse kind of overrides it all. Yeah, and there's a clear like societal benefit, so everyone can just have their part. Nevertheless, the, pro the federal government has signed deals with Alberta, BC, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, PEI, and the territories of Yukon and Northwest Territories. Notably, a lot of provinces, half of them still aren't in there, including Ontario and Quebec, the big two. So um, they need to get those deals signed sooner if they're actually going to get the provinces to plant as many trees as they're hoping. Like, this is a government that got every province on board with $10 a day childcare, so they have some credibility on the intergovernmental relations side, at least. I would have actually guessed that like, Alberta and Saskatchewan would be the holdouts on this. I mean, Saskatchewan is. Yeah. But, and maybe it was under Notley were assigned. I mean, everyone will take some money. And Alberta, Alberta does have a history of conservation in the traditional sense. 
So getting them to plant trees to make the mountains and the north look good wouldn't be that hard. But yeah, you really need to get Ontario and Quebec on board. I think we all laughed when we saw Trudeau announce 2 billion trees. And if they actually are on target and can ramp this up as much as they will say, that's a pretty decent accomplishment. Yeah, on the other hand, 2 billion trees take up a fair bit of space. And like they may end up picking a lot of like the low-hanging fruit. And, you know, that last like half billion should be a, bit, a lot harder than the first, what, like a couple hundred million? I mean, this is a very big country. Didn't you just do the rough calculation of the size of the city of Ottawa alone, and we could probably fit two billion trees in there if we wanted to just make it a nice compact forest. We want to give forest. every tree only a square meter. Yeah, could uh, could work. This is the nerdy stuff we uh, discuss on the Slack among other things. The point is, Ottawa is a very big city, but absurdly big. Like it is basically the size of Metro Vancouver. I if, guess I even count like, own... the stuff that like is part of the metro area on the Tibet side. Yeah, it's weirdly big. Yeah, two on track for two billion trees promising but i guess i just don't have any context to know if that's enough yeah uh, hope, hopefully it's not monocultures and hopefully they're doing everything they need to to make sure this is a sustainable and actually effective program but it seems complicated in how it's rolling out so i'm sure there's going to be a lot that you could easily pick apart and criticize of it but it's something now let's just get two billion houses and we'll be set yeah well uh i mean you need wood for houses so uh two birds one stone on this one and that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>